So this is the third in a series of, uh, of talks on the topic of the foundations of Dharma. Uh, as I've been saying, um, there's, a, there's a lot of Dharma that goes underneath Zen. A lot of Dharma behind some very pithy, paradoxical, hard to understand exchanges and ideas about practice. And uh, I, I find it helpful to have an understanding of what in the world was the conversation? What was going on? How did, how did Zen come to be? What was the foundation? So we've been having this series of talks on um, foundations of Dharma, particularly taking our time bit by bit going through the four noble truths. And today's a day for the third noble truth. Uh, Niroda, cessation, the ending of dukkha, suffering and stress. So it's said that uh, the Buddha declared his awakening and his status as a Buddha only after having a vision both of the Four Noble Truths and the completion of their tasks. A vision of the Four Noble Truths Dukkha, stress, suffering. The task of fully understanding Dukkha. Having a vision of the second noble truth, the arising, the origination of Dukkha, and its task of abandoning. The third noble truth, the ending of suffering, its task, it's to be realized to be seen with one's own eyes, to be understood and experienced. And then the fourth noble truth of the path, the path of practice leading to the cessation of suffering. And the task is, it is to be cultivated. So the Buddha didn't declare awakening until having had that vision and having realized, oh, these are the tasks, these are the things I need to do if I really want to bring suffering, suffering to an end, and then having done, having fulfilled those things, having done them. So um, Buddha's awakening, and then his declaration of the Four Noble Truths, uh, that is also known as setting in motion the wheel of the Dharma. The Buddha beginning the teaching, setting in motion the wheel of the Dharma. And I found this interesting passage. It's a... Um, it's from a sutta we're going to talk about a fair amount tonight um, in the middle length discourses, number 141. And the Buddha defines the setting in motion the wheel of the Dharma just a little differently than I've heard before. And he says, the unexcelled wheel of the Dharma cannot be stopped by any contemplative or Brahman, Deva, Mara, or Brahma, or anyone at all in the cosmos. In other words, and here's the thing that's new, the declaration, teaching, description, setting forth, revelation, explanation, and making plain of these four noble truths. So something important about talking about them, in fact. It's so important that that, uh, that set of verbs declaring the four noble truths, it said six times in this teaching. 
so the, the wheel of the Dharma was set in motion in a, in a, in a place called Varanasi, the deer park. And this site is important. Um, it's not only the site of the, the teaching we're gonna talk about tonight, but it's also the site of the very first teaching of the Dharma. It's the site of the birth of the monastic Sangha. It's the site of the first disciple awakening under the Buddha's uh, guidance. And um, then it's the site of this teaching by Venerable Sariputta that we're gonna talk about tonight. So a pretty loaded location in terms of tradition. Uh, a place where a lot of important stuff happened. So under discussion of the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering. And in fact, our discussion of all four of the noble truths, I found a lot of, I found a lot of help in this teaching that we're gonna talk about by the Venerable Sariputta. Because um, uh, Sariputta is known for being able to explain detail. Sometimes the, teaching, the teachings come along with um, uh, not a lot of explanation. And I think, I think that's kind of a positive thing. It can, be, it can leave room for evocative and live interpretations, interpretations of the teaching. But Venerable Sariputta gives us some hints, some helpers, some pointers. And just to say a few things about who this person was, um, I'm happy to introduce Venerable Sariputta uh, because he's so important to the tradition. Uh, he's one of the two chief disciples of the Buddha, um, foremost in wisdom. Um, Sariputta apparently means the, the, the son of Sari, S-A-R-I. And as, a, as legends tend to go, he had a very auspicious youth, uh, pretty sharp, as you could imagine, and had an experience uh, that put him on the religious path when he was pretty young. He was also pretty quick-witted. Not only, not only was this a, a, sharp, uh, a sharp teacher, Venerable Sariputta, but he also understood the Dharma very quickly, uh, so much so that it was, it was even... I consider this one of the proto-koans, even bef like before the koan literature, an instance of um, someone, in this instance, Sariputta, hearing a short stanza of four lines. And by the time the fourth line happened, had awakened, at least had a glimpse of awakening, and then was later full awakened under the teaching of the Buddha. So quick. Something interesting about, about Sariputta, uh, I think, given that there are two chief disciples, Sariputta and Moggallana, Maha Moggallana, they were born on the same day. They were both uh, sons, of, sons of prominent families in their villages. And they, um, they sort of set out as spiritual friends. One, one to the other was saying, oh, if you find a path, if you find a path to freedom, if you find a path to the deathless, uh, we will promise each other that we'll go, we'll tell, we'll tell the other one and we'll, we'll go do this together. Uh, so Sariputta hears this, hears this stanza, has this awakening and goes and tells, tells his friend, I found it, I found the way. So what might be unexpected is that though Sariputta was very quick in the Dharma, uh, 
his friend, his friend fully awakened to freedom before he did. He actually took his time in, in the sense that every step of the path, Sariputta was analyzing, oh, these are the factors in my mind. These are the factors that are active in my mind. And because of that could teach in this very methodical, detailed, analytical way. So in this teaching uh, from the middle length discourses, number 141, analysis of the truths. Sariputta is the main speaker, but he gets this amazing sort of stage opening, opening by the Buddha. The Buddha said the Buddhism amongst the monastic disciples and and so something like, um, the wheel of the Dharma has been set in motion. It cannot be stopped. Monks, you should, you should uh, consort with, spend time with, associate with, listen to Sariputta. It's a pretty solid endorsement from the Buddha. And then talks about some of Sariputta's virtues. And then gets up and leaves having like set the stage and sort of, sort of like um, uh, said, sorry, Buddha can explain this teaching in detail. And then the Buddha gets up and goes. And after a moment, sorry, Buddha jumps in and explains the first noble truth and the second noble truth and the third. And what I wanna talk about tonight is to take, take a, part of, a part of that teaching, a part of sorry, Buddha's teaching and talk about it this way that Sariputta declares three manifestations, as I see them, of the third noble truth. This, um, these three manifestations are sort of my categorization or my way of interpreting what Sariputta has declared, but I wanna talk about them in terms of three manifestations of the third noble truth. So first to note that Sariputta declares these three manifestation, manifestations in relationship specifically to that craving and clinging of the second noble truth, that craving that leads to further becoming, as the definition goes. So all of the, all of the things we will say about the third noble truth are in relationship to that sort of um, compulsive craving uh, that can be experienced as painful craving and aversion. Uh, I appreciate the, the translation of the, this, this word for craving and uh, craving is uh, tanha, thirst. I think that really gets to the core, to me, uh, of um, moves around some of the misunderstandings. It can be like, oh, craving, abandoned craving. Am I not supposed to have pleasant experiences? Not so. Think more about thirst and how that drives uh, how that can be a biological movement. So Venerable Sariputta declares three manifestations of the third noble truth in relationship to thirst. And the first manifestation is uh, renunciation and relinquishment of that same craving. A renunciation and relinquishment kind of sounds like a downer. <laughs> Like, uh, oh, uh, do I need to give something up? Relinquishment, renunciation. Renunciation sounds pretty heavy to me, but um, I, I wanna move around those words and actually think of renunciation and relinquishment as Buddhist R&R. &R. 
because when they're when they're mature, there's actually so much relief and relaxation and um, support and ease that comes from that comes from these qualities. So as a manifestation of the third noble truth, um, to get a sense of how these are more like R and R than the heaviness of renunciation and relinqu of relinquishment, maybe what can point toward that is to consider the cessation of things that's experienced as pleasant or the cessation of things that's experienced as relief. Like think of the ending of a bad mood and what a relief that feels like after having been dominated by thoughts and feelings or the end of a, a, a long enduring bodily pain or the paying off of the debt or the ending of being in a traffic jam. Pleasant endings. So to relinquish and renounce a traffic jam, a long-standing bodily pain, a bad mood. The ending of these things comes with relief. Um, a friend recently put, uh, put the heart of, of uh, the practice of Buddhist R&R as do less of what doesn't work and do more of what does. <laughs> uh, so simple. That is uh, Buddhist training in a nutshell. Um, sometimes I do want to say that the training in this kind of R&R, uh, renunciation and relinquishment, can require a strong no to internal impulse, uh, to, um, um, yeah, the reactivity to an, uh, something in the environment, something about a no. But what I wanna talk about regarding no is that it, it sometimes needs to be firm, but just the phrase firm enough. There's, some there's sometimes a, a way that uh, renunciation and relinquishment can get an edge of aversion, an edge of like, oh, no, can't let this happen. Um, this experience is not okay. Uh, aversion. So I think a, a corrective to that, to that idea is firm enough, firm enough. You want to, you want to keep a, a balanced relationship to experience while letting go of what hurts, while letting go of what harms, and letting go of what leads to suffering. Of course, you'll hear me quote this often, but uh, if you wanna be free, study where you get stuck. And I think that's a pointer to the way that this kind of training in Buddhist R&R is a direct path both to self-understanding and to freedom. There's this great um, passage from priest ordination. We're having our first priest ordination at City Center uh, on Saturday in two years. For the first time, we're gonna have some folks in the community um, take up a set of vows. 
in, uh, yeah, in a, a long and beautiful ceremony. And there's this moment where the, 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 the priest who is officiating the ceremony makes these remarks on renunciation. And part of it, I wanted to share it with you just because they're so beautiful. And they go like this. Good disciples of Buddha, the source of the mind is still. The ocean of Dharma is profound. Those who realize this are liberated immediately. Traveling the path of Buddha, one must be in the state of renunciation. This is not for renunciation itself, but for the sake of realizing the way. This form is common to all Buddhist orders, a criterion for attaining freedom. To make body and mind one with the way, nothing is better than renunciation. So this renunciation and relinquishment, it's the first of the three manifestations of the third noble truth. That's where I put the names. And it characterizes the Buddhist community, the training in Buddhist community. So the second manifestation of the third noble truth that Venerable Sariputta names is called fading, fading, F-A-D-I-N-G, like the fading of dye. There's really a lot to this one, <laughs> the fading of that same craving. And if you think about, um, I don't know how many of you watched these cartoons I did when I was young. There's that one with, there's that one with that really wily coyote that's always trying to, trying to do stuff to that roadrunner. <laughs> it will sometimes like hang a giant boulder uh, by a rope, or some such things. I always think of the, this cartoon when I think of fading. If uh, renunciation and, re and uh, relinquishment, the R and R, thinking of that that boulder hanging by the rope or anything heavy hanging from a rope. The R and R part is um, when you stop tying knots, you're like, um, uh, if, that, if that big heavy weight, if that rock is the suffering, then when you practice, when you train in R and R is when you stop tying knots to the tree or whatever it's hanging from. And then the fading piece, the fading, if the rope is your connection to that suffering, the fading is when that rope, by virtue of the sun and the rain and time, it bleaches, it weakens, and it starts to crack just little by little. It can't hold the weight. And then all by itself, without, without our um, cutting it or tugging on it, it snaps. And the gradual weakening of that rope, that's fading, our connection to suffering. It's like, um, it's this slow, just gradual fading of craving and clinging with regard to experience. That's so, Mm, in such this tangled way, binds us to suffering. 
and by the simple virtue of engaging in, in our practice, weakens that connection. And we don't know when, we don't really know exactly where, at some point that rope gives way and our binding to suffering is released. So the training and fading, viraga, viraga, non-passion. It's also likened to the dye being washed out of a cloth. Or I often think of when I used to uh, dry my clothes at Tassahara, put them out on the put them out on the line. Very busy at Tassahara. Sometimes you learn it. You learn at Tassahara the value of the four-minute nap. And sometimes I didn't have time to go get my laundry after I put it out on the line. And I would leave it there for a few days and I'd come back and my dark blue shirt had this, not only had this like crispy hand wash folded in half sort of, sort of thing going on, but it also had a nice um, faded white middle of the summer sun line on it, right? The dye had faded. I still wear that shirt. <laughs> Uh, so maybe to get a grip on um, on fading, something about the training, training and fading is that you can think of it as the, the the gradual softening of impulse, the gradual softening of the impulses that lead us to suffering. The best example I can think of is actually when a crush starts to fade. You know how like the crush, when the crush is active, and it's not going to happen, it's unrequited in this example, I'm sorry. Um, the crush is not going to happen, but the crush so obsesses the mind, it's just like loop, 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 loop. And that is painful, that is stressful. Um, and I'm sorry it didn't work out uh, with, with the crush. But the, the practice of fading is when, when um, for whatever reason, there's like a turning point, we stop feeding the crush. We stop like cycling the thoughts deliberately or like looking at pictures of them or whatever else, right? And gradually it starts to fade. Like the, the impulse, the impulse uh, to think about them or, or the, uh, the, the ruminating on how perfect that relationship would be starts to like fade out slowly, slowly, slowly. And then when it's gone, it's like, oh God, I have my mind back. This is so great. What a relief. And that so gradual softening of the impulse, that is the practice of fading. Yeah. And the trick there, when it's easy, when it's easy to do this, don't feed it. When it's easy, don't feed it. So that's uh, relinquishment, renunciation leads to fading, the second manifestation. Um, oh, this is, this is a, a very important point about the practice of fading is that it requires, it requires the courage of clearly seeing what's going on 
clearly seeing the impulse and relating to it with dispassion, just not feeding it. We can still have strong feelings, but we, we're aware, just like, just like in Zazen. It's the practice of staying on the seat, staying connected to experience. Yeah. And the practice washes, washes it away. So that's the second manifestation of the third noble truth is fading. Third manifestation of the, of the third noble truth that Sariputta discusses. It's a series of words and then I'm gonna shorten it. The series is letting go, release, and cessation without remainder. Letting go, release, and cessation without remainder. Before I, before I make it smaller, I just wanna, I wanna highlight that very last part, cessation without remainder, because I find that really inspiring. Um, this, to me, this to me points to just how free we can be. More on that later. Third man, the, third, uh, the third noble truth is full of so much good news. <laughs> uh, this is like, this is the freedom truth. So letting go, release, and cessation without remainder. And uh, to shorten it, it's the manifestation of release. So in the back to the wily e. Coyote moment with the big rock and the rope. If fading is the weakening of that rope over time, its release obviously is when the rope snaps and our, our, um, our binding to craving, clinging, becoming, and suffering releases us or just releases. And what I wanna talk about here in addition to some thoughts about the practice of release. It's also how it's known. How do we know release? And I, I suspect, I suspect all of us have an experience of this. That's pretty instinctive. But what's um, what's really interesting to me in terms of knowing release is that it can happen like all of a sudden, like boom! I I felt I felt anger let go. I felt. Uh, even physically, I felt something that was held, release. Or it can happen totally gradually. Like, um, like, you're, like you're at a party, someone left, you didn't even see them leave, and only later you realize, oh, they're not here anymore. Some, some form of my suffering was here, and now it is not anymore. So... It's always, release is always recognizable by absence. But sometimes you see it go and it happens quickly. Sometimes you don't see it go and it happens gradually. Release is also known by the characteristic, the felt experience of just utter uprightness. Think of your upright posture during zazen in which there's no tug or no push, no pull of craving, clinging, aversion. And you can recognize release. I do wanna say this release, 
there's an associated word vimuti, liberation. Vimuti is the natural result of our practice. It's as, it's as natural as when rain falls on the hillside and it fills up the watershed when we're lucky. And then the, the raindrops turn into little creeks and the creeks turn into rivers and the rivers turn into lakes and then they run all the way out to the ocean. It's that natural. We, we just keep contributing. We do our part and the Dharma, the Dharma does the rest. Vimuti, in fact, liberation, release. It said it's the one flavor of all Dharma. Um, you've probably heard this before. As the, it's said as the, as the ocean has but one flavor, salt, the Dharma has one flavor of release, liberation. I told you this was good news. Third Noble Truth is good news. And um, these, ex these experiences, large or small, gradual or sudden, of release of this manifestation of the Third Noble Truth can be tremendously confidence building. Like Sariputta, again, heard that, heard that stanza, that proto-koan that I, I told, uh, mentioned earlier. Having heard it, had this, had this very clear discernment of something letting go and had the confidence to go to his friend and say, ah, I've found the way, let's go practice. So it was on, the, on that very same site uh, of the Buddhist first sermon, the setting in motion, the wheel of the Dharma that Sariputta talks about these three manifestations of the third noble truth. Manifestation of R&R, &R, renunciation and relaxation. No, renunciation and relinquishment. The manifestation of fading and the manifestation of release, letting go. So it's Sariputta's compassionate teaching actually at the Buddha's encouragement in this teaching in the Middle Link Discourses. It continues the rolling of the wheel of the Dharma and it cannot be stopped. That too is confidence building. And our tasks, in addition to hearing and remembering and practicing the teachings, we take up the four tasks of the Four Noble Truths. With dukkha, we're meant to comprehend. With its arising and origination, we're meant to abandon. And with these manifestations of the Third Noble Truth, we're meant to realize and then next time we'll talk about the fourth noble truth and the task of cultivating. And I wanna encourage us all in our, in our practice by listing some of these, some of our, our Dharma ancestors over the generations who realized, realized with their own hearts and bodies and minds, the beauty of freedom and passed it on to others. And because of that, we are beneficiaries. Like one of the early female monastics, Patachara, unparalleled teacher, 
there's a there's an instance of her teaching in uh, in the Terigata, uh, at, at which time 500 female monastics are enlightened while she's while she's uh, giving the teaching. Mahapajapati, ancestor, first Buddhist nun, Venerable Sariputta, known for leading leading others to awakening. Other chief disciple Mahamogalana, Mahakasyapa, who never gave up life of austerities, living in the woods, even when the Buddha was like, you should come live with me somewhere comfortable. He's like, no, for future generations, I will continue. <laughs> Venerable Ananda, memorizing the entire canon, passing it on to us. Chan Master Hongjur, articulating silent illumination. Our Chan founder Bodhidharma, who voyaged on foot from India to China, on foot. <laughs> uh, and then Zen Master Dogen took his life in his hands and set sail from Japan to China, nearly died, prayed to Avalokiteshvara to make it for the true Dharma. And then Suzuki Roshi crossed the ocean to share the Buddha Dharma, turned the Dharma wheel and gave his life and became American soil. Yeah, I'm filled with gratitude when I think about these, these ancestors that realized the Dharma. I hope, uh, I hope with us and many, many generations to come, the Dharma wheel keeps turning and turning. Please, please practice with sincerity. Thank you.